You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Bettina Arndt. Bettina Arndt is a well-known Australian social commentator with a particular focus on gender issues. After completing a Bachelor of Science at the Australian National University and a Master of Clinical Psychology at the University of New South Wales, she wrote for newspapers, magazines, appeared as a regular expert on uh, sex matters, uh, on television and radio. She then turned her attention to gender issues at large, including the disadvantages that men face, particularly in the family court system and the trail of devastation in people's lives that used to come across my desk as an MP uh, made me very aware of just how anxious some people become when they go through those, those times. Her advocacy for men and her critique of much modern feminism has led to controversy and criticism. Her 2018-19 campus speaking tour addressing the way universities adjudicate sexual assaults was disrupted, it was loudly opposed and widely commented on. Bettina received the Centenary Medal in 2003. In 2020, she was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for her contributions to social commentary and equity for men. This latter award caused a storm of opposition at the time. Her latest book is Men Too, a book about men's issue, issues in what Bettina calls our anti-male society. And in terms of this conversation, we attempt, of course, to ensure that data, facts, arguments that really need to be thought through and grappled with are put before people so they can form their own views. And Bettina's faced attempts to cancel her voice in the public arena, and yet I think some of the work she is doing, some of the research that she's putting forward on the almost the failings of uh, so many of our young men now can't be ignored. It worries me enormously that we don't do more about it. So let's grapple with some of the data and some of the facts and focus on those because I think they need addressing. Uh, and that's what today's all about. But Bettina, uh, welcome. And could you tell us to kick off uh, a bit about your professional background and why you shifted uh, from your well-known role as a sex expert or an expert on sex and relationships to becoming so engrossed with issues like domestic violence and, and family law. John, I just want to say thank you for having me here today and I'm very conscious that it's a bit of a risky business to give someone like me a platform um, and I'm very grateful you're doing that. Um, now, I've had the most extraordinary career, um, starting off as a 23-year-old out there as one of Australia's first sex therapists. Um, and I spent 10 years trying to convince Australia that sex should be a normal part of life. And it was just incredible because I became the person that everybody talked to about sex. Um, I remember once sitting and I got a phone call from a nurse at North Shore Hospital saying, I have a ward full of young men who are saying to me, will I ever get an erection again? And I don't know what to tell them. And none of the doctors will talk to them. And, and I had to go out and try to find what information was there to help these guys. Uh, and this was a whole new frontier of knowledge. And so much, there was so much we didn't know. And it was just incredibly exciting being at the front of that, if you like. Um, 
But initially my work was very much addressed to women. I regarded myself as a feminist. I wanted to help women. But inevitably what happened to me is men started to talk to me. And everywhere I went, <laughs> they'd tell me about their problems and not just about sex, but about uh, issues that were affecting their lives, particularly, you mentioned the, the family law area where so many men tragically were being prevented from seeing their children. And they talked a lot to me about that. And I, got, I wrote for about 20 years about the issues with family law. I got involved in government committees um, to try to reform family law, which was so biased to men's fathers in those early days and in many ways still is. Um, but what, what really bothered me was this, the fact that our whole cultural dialogue was very much tilted to women's wants, women's needs. We saw feminism really start to assert itself in terms of controlling the media and an absolute distortion. We never heard what it's like from the male point of view. And I suppose one of the classic examples was the issue of housework, childcare, you know, who does what around the home. And we had this study which came out every few years called the time use study which calculated you know who does what and it was always published and there would be this huge male bashing tirade men are so lazy women are doing it all and what they never they talked about hours spent on housework and childcare. they never talked about total time at work of work and if you look at total work combining paid and unpaid um, contribution to the household that for decades now we've been neck to neck men and women ordinary couples know that they know the guy gets up at five o'clock to travel across Sydney to get to his work and she appreciates that's what he's doing and even though if he does get home to change the nappy you know and that part of the story has been totally deliberately neglected and it becomes this giant male bashing exercise and it just got worse and worse over the last few decades. I mean, the other classic, you might have seen um, uh, last year, there, were, there was a lot of fuss in the news about some young men having to stand up in school and apologise for being male. And this was the, in Victoria? Yeah, the Victoria. I think there was another one, one in South Australia. And everyone was outraged. In our curriculum across Australia now, boys are being systematically shamed. Uh, this is absolutely part of what they're being taught. I have a, a thesis from a young teacher who looked at a child prevention program, which is throughout the South Australian school system, uh, where it had, I think, over 80 examples of males being aggressive, males behaving badly to, towards women, towards f girls and, and women, and one example of, of a girl misbehaving. It was all about teaching males to be ashamed of being male and girls to be fearful of men. And that's what we're teaching in our schools. Uh, yeah, I must say, uh, I, I, don't, I don't understand domestic violence. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how people can resort to that. I, don't, I, I struggle with cruelty, whether it's what we're seeing in the Ukraine as we speak, whether we're talking about what happens in the parliament. And it's very evident to me that many men really do feel a lot of pain at the moment and they feel it's not understood. But I can't help thinking that Warren Farrell who, in America, who's described as America's leading male feminist, has got a very valid point when he says, if one sex is not doing well, then neither sex is really 
doing as well as they should. Uh, or if it put another way, if we've got a lot of damaged men, they will inflict real heart hurt on society. But we don't have a lot of damaged men. I we mean, have that's some. what I, that's what have... I want to. We have some, yeah. and we have some men who behave extremely badly and are dangerous and are vicious to women, but they are very much a minority. And most Australian men are care about the women in their lives, are gentle to the women in their lives. If anything, they put them on too much of a pedestal. You think of a traditional Australian man, I mean, you weren't even allowed to swear in front of women. I mean, that was the tradition of being very caring about the women in their lives. And, and men are being absolutely misrepresented in our, in our male bashing society. And that's what I want to teach people today, I suppose. Well, this is a, yeah, I'm very keen to, um to, to end, help end those wars, if that makes sense, because cooperation is the only way a society can move forward. And, you know, I heard an American social commentator say the other day, we seem to be at war at every level. It's gender versus gender. Uh, it's race versus race. And it's generation versus generation. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought the Ukraine would show us that we're all Australians together. We need to find the things we've got in common before we constantly divide over the things that seem to set up this environment of enmity. You, you touched on feminism there in your own position. Um, uh, you've historically called yourself, I think, a feminist. Many feminists would now say that you're an outright traitor to the cause. What, would you still call yourself a feminist, if I can just ask you that? And um, what's happened to, um, to feminism that so many self-described feminists now would say you're an outsider, you're not a feminist? I think there's a whole generation of older feminists like me who no longer call themselves feminists. I mean, I was a feminist when feminism was about equality, about levelling the playing field, giving women an opportunity to find their rightful place, particularly in the public world, which was tremendously important and exciting when we achieved that. Um, but what feminism today, to me, is all about advantaging women at the expense of men. And it's become very much caught up in the demonization of males, um, presenting them always at a disadvantage. And I don't want to have any part of that. I was writing recently about boys' education, which, which is something I've written about for many decades. And I, I came across an article I wrote 40 years ago where we just started to notice how badly boys were doing vis-a-vis -vis girls. I mean, we'd had 10 years of programs trying to help girls do better in the schools, which was fantastic. And, and a lot of girls who had been held back by traditional assumptions about, you know, girls not speaking up and girls not doing well in maths were now beginning to shine, which was a fantastic thing. But what was becoming very obvious is there were also a lot of boys falling behind and not achieving their potential. Anyway, I, I was talking to this director of curriculum and I said, what will we do if boys continue to fall behind? And she said, we'll wait 2,000 years and analyse the results very, very carefully. <laughs> and she said, oh, no, that was only a joke. But of course, that's exactly what they've done. Uh, we have really very much feminist ideology infiltrating all our education systems, systematic programs to continue to advantage girls, and no one taking any notice of the fact that boys are f falling out in huge numbers. Boys are not finishing school. They're, they're less likely to finish school than they used to. 
We have 60% of graduates are now women. If you look at the NAPLAN, the skills test done in high school, uh, in year nine NAPLAN results, um, writing tests, um, the girls are, are two years ahead of boys on average. Um, boys are filling the remedial reading classes, you name it. Every measure of, of boys dropping out, being disengaged from schools, is showing up this real problem. We've had two investigations, two inquiries, New South Wales Parliament, Federal Parliament, um, thousands of parents coming forward saying they're really worried to see no boys winning prizes anymore. I mean, it's fantastic to see all the girls, but they're conscious of how badly a lot of the boys are doing and how decisions they are because so many of the ways we teach are designed to appeal to women's strengths and girls' strengths. And both of these inquiries, they determined they would implement all these new policies to help to bring boys up. And they were both tossed out as soon as the coalition government was thrown out. Labor, the, the mean girls in Labor, decided we didn't want a bar of that. Warren, you mentioned Warren Farrell. Uh, he makes a very telling comment saying, this is the first time ever we've seen a generation of boys who are going to be less educated than their fathers. And that's mm. happening here. That's really chilling. And so, no one cares, John. No one notices any of this. Seems important to me to say that it's a, tr I mean, I have three daughters. It's a tremendous thing that they are getting the best possible education, achieving, reaching their potential. That's not what's in question. No. But you, that was very interesting. Um, you're saying a, a generation of boys less educated than their, fathers. than their fathers. Because always we've tried to bring our, you know, our children up. We want them to do mm. better than us. We want them to be better educated. And that's happening certainly with our girls. But mm. no one will acknowledge that, that our boys are not going to be as educated as their fathers were. Now, why won't we look at that? There was a very interesting graph that went with one of your articles recently that just highlights this, um, this increasing gap. Yeah. Um, have a look at it now. I must say, anecdotally, and on this show we try to keep to the facts and ask people to engage with them, but anecdotally I was, I was amazed the other day to talk to a, a lady in Sydney who participates annually in selecting emerging young leaders. And she said to me in conversation, can you tell me what's happening? Because every year we struggle more to find young men who are confident enough to even enter into the competition to be identified as a leader. And we're having to give nearly all of the awards to girls. They're bright as buttons, they're outgoing, they're confident. And when we give them the award, they give it up and speak well. And all the young blokes are sort of almost sort of turning in on themselves, hard to find leaders. And when we do, they're nowhere near as confident as the girls when we make the award and ask them to say something. I know that's anecdotal. But, but I, I hear this all the time. Parents yeah. write to me saying, no girls get, pri no boys get prizes anymore at our speech day. You know, it's mm -hmm. five girls and maybe one boy. Uh, people are noticing this and are very concerned about it. And it's about part of that confidence issue is about being through a school system, which is systematically mm -hmm. um, trying to encourage girls to do well and mainly being taught by female teachers. And there's real evidence showing the girl, that female teachers tend to mark boys more harshly, tend to punish them more for misbehaving in class. Um, I mean, a whole lot of issues involved here.
the, the, the issue of um, uh, rape on university campuses, I mean, it, it obviously from time to time happens, it happens everywhere in society. It's a terrible and appalling thing that can never be excused. But, but you have a strong view backed by what appears to be very powerful data that the safety, if you like, on our campuses uh, is, is, is not as miserable, not as terrible as has been claimed. John, I totally agree with you. Every rape must be taken very seriously. And of course, there, are, there is sexual assault on campuses, but we're really lucky because they're actually really safe places for, for young women. And we know that. The feminists a few years ago persuaded our Human Rights Commission to do a million dollar survey to find out uh, to ask people on campus, the students themselves, how often they've experienced sexual assault. And what they came up with was 0.8% in any year of people said that some sort of a sexual assault had occurred, which can include a stranger groping them on the train to uni, not even another student. It was the broadest possible definition, and they got less than 1% having a problem here, which is something to celebrate. I mean, I wrote an article saying, let's celebrate our safe universities. And I also got, uh, talked to the, you know, we have the wonderful New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics, and they pulled out the data that showed our universities are a hundred times safer on average than being in the general community. They're one of the safest places for young people. Uh, so that's actual hard data. Hard data. From? From the uh, Australian... In, uh, sorry, the Human Rights Commission, Australian Human Rights Commission, was a deliberate survey to try to find evidence for the mm. rape crisis. Mm. And it was a total fizzer. What they found was quite a lot of sexual harassment, including definitions like unwanted staring. So they mainly found lots of unwanted staring. And they went out and said, well, we've got a crisis of sexual violence on our campuses. They stopped talking about sexual assault and had this all-encompassing concept of violence. They bully the university going ahead with all these measures to, to regulate and adjudicate sexual assault on campus. So there's something counterintuitive here. If the survey showed that, in fact, the universities were safer spaces, to use that word, safe spaces, yeah. than outside, why would the universities themselves, their councils, their leaders, their, 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 their senior people, not that, celebrate that reality, albeit, you know, go got, to correct the things that are still not right. Look, but. we've got this very powerful lobby that for years has been working on this concept of a, a, a rape culture on campus. I wrote, after that survey was published, I wrote to every university, every vice chancellor and said, why are you frightening off overseas families from sending their daughters to our country by pretending there's a rape crisis when there isn't? They, you can imagine the weasel words that came back from the PR departments of the universities, pretending, no, 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 we have to ensure safety of our students. They are, our universities are sadly totally captured by this lobby group that is managing to persuade our whole culture that there's a problem on our campuses. And it has a really interesting origin. This all dates back to actually Joe Biden, who was vice president in the Obama administration. Uh, and at, at that time, this was all just beginning. The feminists were out there trying to uh, beat up this notion that, that students are unsafe. They produced a survey showing one in three students is sexually assaulted, which has been totally discredited since then. Uh, but Biden you announced 
He was going to change the sexual culture of America. And the place to do that was on our campuses. And the issue that's at the heart of this is this concern from feminists that we're not seeing enough rape convictions, particularly in relation to these cases of young people, date rape, if you like. He said, she said, you know, two young people having different versions of what happens. And they go before a jury and the jury tends not to want to send that young man to jail when they don't know who to believe. So juries have been throwing out a lot of these cases. Quite rightly, we're dealing with long prison sentences. And if you don't know where the truth is, how are you going to convict those young men? And so what Joe Biden did was set up tribunals all right across America, which took these cases out of the judicial system and set up these tribunals where boys would be denied their normal legal rights. Uh, there would be a secretive committee investigating the matter and making determination on the basis of the lowest possible proof. And across America, hundreds of students were thrown out of universities. Is this what you might call in Australia a sort of process of kangaroo courts? Yeah, well, this, the Americans had their own kangaroo courts long before we did. And I was writing about this saying, this is coming here. Mm. And lo and behold, exactly the same thing happened in Australia. They made this case for a rape culture on campus. And then they, the universities didn't, not a single university stood up and said, okay, we're not going to worry about this issue. Thank goodness our students, not, not to say it never happens, but we're mainly dealing with a problem of low grade harassment. And we will educate people about this. We will not usurp our criminal law system our, uh, and start adjudicating rape. And none of them had the courage to take on this feminist lobby. And so every university in Australia is now making decisions around these sexual assault cases and boys are being thrown out of universities. The universities are stealing their degrees, something they've worked for years to achieve. University feels totally entitled to say, I'm not going to give you your degree. I've See, actually seen a video clip, just to interrupt for yeah. a moment, of a distraught mother. Um, a mother of a son. From near where you live, your territory, Armadale, yeah. uh, in the new middle of New South Wales. A, mother, a dairy farmer, these, this family, and mother talking about what happened to her son and how he was a nursing student. He faced a false accusation um, made by a woman who had a history of you know, mental problems of various sorts. And he was publicly shamed. He was thrown out of the college. He lost a year of his nursing degree. And eventually the, the girl had, had already withdrawn that accusation. I mean, I, I look at these cases. I have a team of lawyers working pro bono to help young men who are being falsely accused in our universities. And last weekend, I spent time with one of these males who's just been through the rigor in one of our big universities. He, he was a brilliant young doctor from overseas, doing really well. He was stupid enough to decide to do postgraduate study at an Australian university. He comes here, he's a gay guy actually, and he was in a leadership role on, in, in his college. He was asked to reprimand one of the guys who'd been behaving badly in college. He did that. And this guy seemed to have had it in for him and made a, a rape accusation against this, this doctor. The university didn't investigate anything 
immediately believed this accusation, threw, publicly threw this young man out. He was dumped in a place miles away from anyone he knew. Uh, he then, two years later, a magistrate threw this out and another court gave costs against the Crown. That, you know, which, mean, which is really rare because the magistrate, the court determined that this should never have gone near a court. This ludicrous case involving a very, um, a witness who had no, you know, his case just didn't stand up. And we've eventually, my lawyers have managed to finally achieve a confidential settlement from that university. But last weekend, he still has parts of his hair missing. He's got alopecia from the stress of that incident that occurred years ago. He'll never recover from what they did to him. It worries me that some people are almost looking for this parallel legal system, what might be called kangaroo courts, because they don't think that there are enough convictions out of the regular court so, system. That's happening internationally as well as here. Mm -hmm. The huge danger is that it will destroy something that is incredibly important for every citizen, regardless of gender, which is the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Yep. This terrible tendency to want to find a different system with a lower standard of law Perhaps understandable given the sensitivities of the subject, but nonetheless unbelievably dangerous because our freedoms depend upon a, a, system, a legal system that's evolved over many years that begins with the presumption of innocence. And protection for the accused yeah. and the, the accused's right to have evidence um, that might exonerate it. Be, be presented properly and to cross-examine witnesses mm. and, and to give him the best possible chance of making the case if he's an innocent man. That's what our justice system is all about. And we're seeing this constant call now for independent inquiries, which is about kangaroo. They want these kangaroo courts. Joe Biden wanted kangaroo courts to get more convictions, to remove the protection from the accused to make it as easy as possible to nail that guy. And that's what the push is all about. And that is what's happening in our uh, university system. We've allowed our universities to usurp our criminal law. And that's just appalling and no one cares. Look, there's no question that rape victims used to be dealt with very badly by our criminal justice system. Uh, they weren't taken seriously, they weren't pr protected, they, you know, they were often cross-examined in a very ferocious way. Was it, they faced another ordeal in our criminal justice system. We've had an enormous change in the way the, the criminal justice system is dealing with rape victims and they're bending over backwards now to ensure every possible case gets through to, and it's given a proper trial. Um, but there's deliberate manipulation of this issue by our media, constantly presenting the idea that, you know, it's that rape victims still don't get a fair go. And this was a classic example where the Law Reform Commission published this data suggesting only two to three percent of um, rape allegations make it through to court. And I thought that can't be right and I was talking to, there's a very good researcher called Greg Anderson who publishes a really, the only really reputable source of domestic violence data called oneinthree.com um, and he 
spent months and months, freedom of information requests, trying to work out what the true figures really were. And he discovered that the Law Reform Commission had exaggerated by five times the, the cases that had been reported in the previous year, the sexual abuse cases. And the proportion of cases determined in court was actually 10 times more than they claimed, a leap from 3 to 30%. Um, so the, the Law Reform Commission had it wrong and they were told they had it wrong and they sat on that for two months while the New South Wales Parliament debated legislation to, to introduce new sexual consent laws. Um, and it was all over the media, that 2 to 3%. It was used throughout that to make the case that the system was failing rape victims. And they were wrong. And then only after the legislation went through did they release that data. So the Law Reform Commission has conceded the point? Yes. After significant legislation's passed, that they, driven they, they, in they, no they, small part by false uh, numbers? False numbers. And we've, I've got all my... I have this huge group of supporters who write letters for me and they wrote to the Attorney General and they wrote to members of Parliament saying, what was this all? This is like a conspiracy. And um, of course, we just get rubbish back from their PR people. <laughs> but at least we draw attention to what is a real injustice and a manipulation of our criminal justice system. I note that um, a very prominent Sydney barrister and former public prosecutor Margaret Kaneen recently uh, commented that um, there's a danger here that the changes in the criminal justice system could be designed to ensure more rape convictions by denying accused men normal legal process. Uh, she said all men and mothers and sisters and friends of men ought to be very concerned because what wasn't rape last year may be rape this year if the purposes of these reforms is simply to increase the number of people who are convicted of rape. That's a she, I mean, it was a really issue of innocence before guilt. Yeah, a very important speech was to the Rule of Law Education Centre. Essentially what she exposed is the fact that the police and the prosecutors no longer have discretion to have a look at a rape accusation and see whether it's got legs. They have to push everything through to court. And then a certain proportion of those cases, thank goodness, are thrown out by juries who don't believe all women and who make, you know, make careful judgments about whether the case stands up. But then the feminists turn around and say, look, rape, rape convictions are going down. We have to introduce more measures to nail these guys. And the politicians get involved. I mean, it's a perfect system. Pushing them all through, more and more of them fail, and then they can complain the system isn't working. Perfect. So you would question the, sl the slogan, uh, well, you say the juries question the slogan, believe all women. Our juries are holding up pretty well. Mm. Um, Margaret, Margaret Canine actually told me of a case where she was defending a man of false se sexual accusation and during the court process, you know, the woman's lies were exposed. It was patently obvious the guy was being set up. And the foreman stood up when he had announced the verdict and said, not guilty. <laughs> and, um, you know, they brought the house down. But it was clear the emotion in that room about the fact that this, this guy had this totally 
a false allegation being made against him. Around four years ago, you decided to do a campus tour to speak out about what was happening. It led to nothing less than the, a riot squad being needed to protect you <laughs> when protesters at Sydney University tried to stop you speaking. Can, can you give us a feeling for what that was like, what motivated you uh, and what the outcome was? Look, obviously I'm incredibly frustrated that this is going on in our universities and no one will talk about it. And I thought, well, if I go on campus and speak to students, at least it might help get the message out. And of course, what happened is there was a colossal movement to try to stop me, which worked very well for me because it got a lot of publicity. One university, La Trobe, said I wasn't allowed to speak because it clashed with the values of the university to tell the truth about what's happening on our campuses. Um, but Sydney was the classic where there was this ferocious group of, of activists trying to stop my audience being able to get to the venue and they were pushed against the wall and shoved. We were all screamed at and we had to have the riot squad brought in to allow the, audience, the whole thing to go ahead. And what was fantastic for me is Dan Tian had just started as education minister and he announced he was starting a, going to do an investigation, inquiry into free speech on campus. And that actually led to new legislation. And I take a bit of credit for that, not that I ever get it. Um, but it was, you know, at least it, it brought to the fore this question of what aren't you allowed to talk about on our campuses? And most particularly this issue of what you know what i've been talking about the fact that we we have this real what i regard as a really dangerous system of secretive courts doing over young men and and denying them their normal legal protection so a couple of years ago you were awarded an order of australia and almost immediately you were subjected to a cancel campaign uh, where prominent people including two state attorneys general asked for the award to be rescinded, claiming that you denigrated victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse. Those who objected to your award tended to try and paint you as not just being dishonest in your professional qualifications. These are serious charges, but also soft on sexual abuse, particularly regarding a case that occurred in Tasmania in 2010 between a male teacher and a, and a female student. Your response? Yeah, well, I mean, it was very interesting for me. I, because, of course, doing this work on campuses was making me some very serious enemies because the, the young women who'd been involved in setting up this whole apparatus on campus, they didn't want me out there exposing what was going on. And it was one particular activist, an NRAPE on campus activist, who had been for years publishing articles defaming me. And within a few hours of my award being announced, she was writing articles, including all this misleading information about my career, carefully manipulated bits of videos I'd made, meant, designed to make me look as bad as possible, uh, a whole lot of malicious material. And she'd lined up all these people, including Attorney General, to denounce me, to, you know, and, and the mob came for me. It was just extraordinary day after day of being denigrated by all our media. Um, now, their main, major ammunition they had was this interview I did a few years ago uh, with a teacher who'd gone to prison for having sex with his pupil, a 15-year-old girl, who happened to be last year's 
Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. And I got involved in this when I heard, I heard about the fact that he, he'd served his prison sentence, he'd gone back, to, he lost his job, lost his family, everything. He decided to do a PhD at Hobart University and the end rape on campus activists were stopping him from attending the university, screaming and yelling. And a judge wrote an article saying, we don't believe in vigilante justice. People have a right, who've served their sentences have a right to live their lives. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to talk to this man. And I did a long interview with him. We started saying, you did a terrible thing. You just went to prison. Did you deserve that? And he said, yes, I did. It, it set it up as a very serious issue, which it is. Um, but it was a long interview. And looking back, I included material in there. You know, we, we ended up chatting about other things. I included material about, for instance, the risks to, to males of teachers of, of dealing with accusations from girls. And I shouldn't have included that all in that interview. I would say that very clearly now, but that video was maliciously edited down to about a minute and shown again and again across the media in Australia, designed to make me look as if I was protecting this man and not taking his crime seriously. Um, so that was one accusation that, you know, must have been shown on the ABC a hundred times, that video, and it was extremely damaging for me. And of course, Grace Tame last year has been out making all sorts, more and more derogatory comments about me, and I get th threats, you know, death threats, and God only knows what, it's still continuing. Uh, you mentioned this issue of my professional qualifications and th this particular, particular activist has spent two years trying to prove, to de you know, um, to criticise my qualifications and say I'm misrepresenting them. Um, and in fact, she'd been on social media asking people to dob me in to the health authorities, say I'm a fake psychologist. And three times the health authorities have investigated me and each time said, I'm not doing anything. There's no reason to take any action against me. The problem is that I trained as a clinical psychologist at a time when psychologists didn't have to be registered. Um, so I finished my degree. I went out and started doing therapy for only for a few months. And then I, well, for the rest of my career, I worked in the media. And the problem is that Often I would refer to myself or people would refer to me as a psychologist or a former psychologist, just as Norman Swan is referred to as a doctor. And there's a, you know, a lot of uncertainty about whether you can still call yourself uh, uh, using a professional label if you're not still practicing in that way. And so that, that was used as an attack on me. And in fact, the health authority said I didn't do anything wrong. So, but boy, did they, they get a lot of traction. And you know, the New South Wales Attorney General just poured out all these malicious accusations about me and demanded my award be rescinded. He, he read from the feminist songbook and condemned me. He didn't bother to do any question of what, into what I'd done. Well, the Honours Board did not rescind your honour. They did not rescind, no. I got my honour. No. Um, I mean, if I look back on that whole period, one of the things I regret now is I was very involved in social media. I had a big following on Facebook and Twitter and so on. 
was in there discussing a lot of these issues. And there was a particularly controversial, horrible homicide involving um, Hannah Clark, who was yeah, killed by her, ex, her partner, ex-husband, uh, and with her three children. Um, and the police investigator made a statement um, to the pr press saying they were proposing to keep an open mind and explore the possibility as to whether well, the, the ex-husband, the father, had been driven too far. And of course, all hell broke loose and they, you know, the, the media tried to push it. I think they did push that policeman out of his job. And I tweeted congratulations on him keeping an open mind. And I quoted what he'd said. The Australian Senate, the mean girls from Labor in the Australian Senate, used that to wedge the government into voting for a motion to condemn me. And they didn't say I'd quoted this policeman. They claimed I'd said what the policeman said. So they actually lied in that motion. And I thought it was one of the, the, probably the worst moment of my life. The Australian government condemns me. So they did a pretty good job. The mob came to me for me big time. And it took an enormous toll. They attacked my family. They, it was horrendous. The, and the funny thing is, the silver lining for me was COVID. Along came COVID and took me off the front pages. And I can't tell you what a relief that was. <laughs> well, Bettina, plainly, it's been a very tough time. Um, effectively, I guess you'd say you've been deplatformed and there's been real damage to your professional reputation. Um, even though it's pretty widely known that Wikipedia is not an entirely trustworthy source of information. And there are often things in Wikipedia that can be interpreted in ways that are simply contextually unfair and unreasonable. But your Wikipedia page contains some quotes that certainly cast you in a negative light. How do you feel? Do you sort of have regrets? Would you handle it differently now? Um, because this is a live issue. If, if we're going to just cancel people because we don't like what they're saying rather than grapple with the importance of the data and the research that they're presenting and make that the issue, we really are in trouble as a, as a society. Well, I'm glad you raised Wikipedia because it's the bane of my life. It's so annoying to me um, that Wikipedia has been captured and by people determined to damage me. And I've had academics, I've had all sorts of people try to get in there to correct. You're supposed to be able to correct the inf misinformation and they won't let them. Because for anyone who's really interested in what happened to me and who did it, it's all on my website. I've got all the evidence we presented to the, the press council investigated these attacks on me. And I had to put together all these doctored um, ed, uh, videos and so on. So I hope some people will be interested enough to look to the truth of what's going on here. So, Bettina, you see, for me now, what becomes the issue is, well, what about that? extraordinary in-depth research that you do that needs to be taken seriously at a time when we're all at one another's throats and when it's all too convenient if somebody doesn't want to hear a contra view just to shut people down. And so I want to come to an area where you have a lot more expertise than me and these are areas that I don't even, I find it very hard to even talk about. Uh, domestic violence, child abuse and so forth. So. Domestic violence, usually presented as a, as a male problem with dangerous men attacking women and children. 
The solution uh, is often painted as being all about addressing misogynist attitudes, mm -hmm. including respect for women. You don't entirely share that view? What, there's nearly half a century of research showing that is not true. A few years ago, you might remember David Lionhelm, the senator, grilled um, bureaucrats in Senate estimates, asking what is the evidence for this link between domestic violence and respect for women, um, this idea that it's all about misogynist attitudes. And questions on notice, months later, they came back with a few WHO reports showing that if you include countries like Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, you do get a link in some of these deeply misogynist countries between rates of domestic violence and and um, and these sorts of attitudes. But it doesn't show up in egalitarian countries like Australia or Britain or Canada. Um, it's just the evidence is simply not there. And we have, as I said, half a century of research showing this is a deeply complex complex problem with a range of causal factors, including drug and alcohol abuse, mental illness, family background, uh, socioeconomic background, poverty. It's, it, it is not across the board. It, it, and it is certainly not just about men being violent. The evidence is overwhelming that most Family violence is two-way violence involving both male and female aggressors. And there's a very interesting example of that. Um, but there's a famous longitudinal study in, in New Zealand called the Christchurch Longitudinal Study. Been years and years and years, decades, looking at important social issues. And there's a video made with one of their researchers talking about how they went out to interview people about domestic violence. And instead, instead of asking who are victims of violence, they asked who are perpetrators. And they were absolutely astonished to find women just as likely to say, I, I started hitting my partner. I, I'm the aggressor in our family. Uh, the women were just as likely to acknowledge that as the men. And when they published this, of course, all hell broke loose. Those researchers won't even talk about it now. Uh, because they've had such flack for telling the truth about domestic violence. We've had professors, we've had academics across the world doing brave people doing research into this, and they've had death threats. They've had their funding withdrawn. They've had been booed from the stages of conferences because there's this deliberate attempt to present this problem as entirely about aggressive men and they don't want to know what the real research shows. I'll just briefly describe what is our, our best sorts of knowledge on this topic, which is a big research study which involved 42 scholars from 22 universities across America and included other countries. It was called the Partner Abuse State of Knowledge Project. They looked at over 1,700 peer-reviewed articles into where research into domestic violence. And what they found was this overwhelming pattern of two-way violence with women more often than men instigating violence. That's what emerges in the research. Uh, children aren't watching their dads abuse their fathers. 
abuse their mothers in, in violent homes. They're just as likely to be worried about their violent mothers. And that knowledge is being systematically repressed. It is true that men are usually much stronger, and so they, when they express their violence inappropriately, horrible, horrible things can happen. Yeah, I mean, women are more likely to die. Homicide levels are higher through domestic violence for women because of the men's strength and, 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 and you know, that they're more likely to be physically, mm. you know, cause physical harm when they do abuse women. There's, never, there's no question of that. Um, but the point is that it's, it's this two-way street. It's about men and women who don't know how to handle conflict. And we're doing nothing about that. We're lying about this really important uh, social issue. So this is really important. So neither of us are saying anything other than that domestic violence is appalling. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible thing. To me, it's inexplicable and inexcusable. But what I hear you saying, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that if we're not understanding the true nature of it, the true dimensions of it, then we're not going to find the solutions to the problem. We're not we need to find the solutions. Yeah. That should be the objective. We're not addressing the solution at all. And the best example of that, there's a wonderful woman called Erin Pizzi, and she's, she's famous in Britain. She started the first women's refuge, refuge for women to go to escape domestic violence back in the early 1970s. And when she set that up, she found she was having real problems because some of the women coming to that refuge were violent, violent to other women, violent to their children. And she started to speak out about this and say, we have a problem here of not just violent men, but you know, violence within families, very much related to having observed violence when they were growing up in families. And she, Erin, actually had a violent mother. So she knew all about this. She set up a whole string of refugees all over Britain. They started attracting real funding. And what happened was the feminists, the women's movement as it existed at that time, realised this was a huge potential source of, of money for the women's movement. And Erin Pezzi was threatened. Her dog was killed. She had to leave Britain um, because they wanted to get rid of her because she was telling the truth about domestic violence and you weren't allowed to do that because the, and Erin has made hundreds of videos talking about the fact that the women's movement latched on to domestic violence as their cash cow, as their major source of funding uh, for the whole feminist enterprise. And it's been miraculous in how much money they have managed to get governments to give for what is a totally distorted view of this complex sexual problem. We've given, we've given spent $3 billion over the last decade in Australia on domestic violence, most of which going to this totally erroneous notion that we have to address misogynist attitudes to cure domestic violence. And it's absolutely wrong. It's a matter of interest. We often hear that uh, domestic violence doesn't discriminate, that it occurs amongst the affluent. I, I hear that said often, as well as the poorer members of society. But, but you've actually, I think, indicated that, in fact, it does tend to concentrate with less affluent socioeconomic communities. Can you explain the link between domestic mm -hmm. violence and socioeconomic conditions, why it's important to understand this aspect of domestic violence? Well, this is what, if you look at the research, it's very clear 
it is related to a socioeconomic level. But it's not what you hear on the streets. No, of course we don't hear anything. We don't hear the truth about domestic violence. We are not allowed to hear the truth about domestic violence. The feminist enterprise wants to present this as across the board. It affects all of us. It's in every home. It's not just something that's particularly confined, confined to poorer communities. And of course it's not. It is, can be happen anywhere. There's no question about that. We have a very good organisation called the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics producing official data based on police reports. And they show that in outback communities like Walgood or Canamble, domestic violence related assaults are 25 times more common than in affluent suburbs like Lane Cove or Mossman. The evidence is there. It's just the media isn't interested in presenting that. They want to promote this feminist ideology which says it's across the board, it can happen to anybody. You've said, uh, and I'm quoting, that mothers, particularly single mothers and their boyfriends, pose a far greater risk than fathers, which, by which I take it you mean biological fathers in particular, of physical and psychological abuse and neglect of children, and that, further quote, there is irrefutable statistical evidence showing fathers are more likely to provide safer care than mothers. That doesn't fit with the common narrative. No. We've had 25 years in Australia since our official government bodies have dared to publish research on the gender of perpetrators of child abuse. In 1996, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare published a paper uh, on abuse and neglect of children, showing that mothers were twice as likely as fathers to be responsible for abuse and neglect. That was the last time they've published that data and none of our government organisations will publish it anymore. Um, one of the, um, the, the men's groups actually did a freedom of information request and got the, the WA, Department of Child Protection, to release their figures. They're gathering these figures every year. They won't release them. And I think you have the statistics, John, on, on showing uh, what they found. 73% of cases of abuse and neglect uh, by, by parents that year, the, the year they were looking at, uh, involved mothers who were the perpetrators. Mothers were responsible for 68% of cases of emotional and psychological abuse, 53% of the physical abuse, and 93% of the neglect. I mean, this is what drives me crazy, that they're managing, the activists are managing to, to bully our official organisations into only telling one side of the story. The, the greatest risk of sexual abuse to children is from mum's boyfriend. There's decades of research showing that from um, casual men passing through the lives of single mothers. What happened during COVID? Uh, you know, it was a very different period. People were together a lot more under the same roofs. Lockdowns were said to be a necessary measure. But it's been widely realised that there are a lot of other uh, kinds of effects. Domestic violence being one of the ones that was bandied around quite a bit. What, what really happened? What do we what know? What really happened? The great COVID domestic violence fundraiser, I call it. I mean, it was just amazing to watch. As soon as COVID happened and the lockdowns were imposed, we had this narrative from the media saying there's going to be a second pandemic of violence from men being, uh, mothers, women being locked up with dangerous men. 
look at the statistics, John, when we're talking about the population of Australian men. I mean, we have this impression that there's this enormous risk of dangerous men out there. But if you look at our official statistics, um, this is the Bureau, Australian Bureau of Statistics Personal Safety Survey, which is our best source of data on domestic violence in this country. That show, the latest survey shows 1.8% of women are physically assaulted by their partner or ex-partner. It has been physically assaulted in the previous year. We're talking 1% of Australian men. And yet we have this media warning that there are dangerous men everywhere. I mean, it is such an insult to half our population, this sort of propaganda. And that's what it is. And we saw that just take over when COVID hit, this narrative about having to protect women who are being locked up with these men. Um, and, you know, they, they went, media went on and on and they put out money and the governments started pouring money into trying to help the domestic violence services deal with this problem. And then the data started to come in and all the official data said, if anything, domestic violence reports had gone down during that period. So we had the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics analyse police data, police crime data. Victoria looked at the rates of violent crimes. There was data from Victorian police, the data from ambulance, uh, um, ambulance Victoria, all of which showed no increased incidence of domestic violence. And what did they do? You have to give it to them. The domestic violence industry then went to their own groups, to their own refuges and surveyed them and said, have you noticed an increase in domestic violence? Oh, yes, you have. And that was all over the papers. <gasps> Huge increase in domestic violence. They ignored the official data and created this misleading propaganda. And more, boy, did, was this a huge success. Let me give you some of the figures. I mentioned that we normally, over the last decade, we've given $3 billion to domestic violence. Annually, um, they get about $100 million, the domestic violence, the big domestic violence industry, all the organisations associated with domestic violence. The COVID fundraiser produced a 150% increase in their annual handout from the government leaping from 100 to 250 million a year, and which is going to last until 2023. I mean, it was just an extraordinary success and it was totally misleading. Coercive control is simply the latest weapon, if you like, in the armory that's being, the domestic violence armory that's used against men. And it refers to psychological abuse they talk particularly about a system of manipulation and surveillance, isolation from friends, put down, simulation. This idea of a controlling, psychological control by men over women. And of course, anyone realises that women are actually very good at psychological abuse. We know exactly which buttons to press if we want to drive our partners crazy. So it, in theory, should be a two-way thing. But the way it works out is it's being used totally against men. In Britain, uh, coercive control was introduced in 2015. In 2017, they found 97% of cases of people being convicted of 
coercive control were involved male perpetrators. Males don't put themselves forward as victims of coercive control. They, they don't see themselves, they're reluctant to see themselves in that light. They know if they do come forward, they'll be laughed out of the police station. I mean, that's the reality. We have a, had a very big um, survey, international survey run by the University of Central Lancaster in the, just over the last few years, which included survey on male victims of coercive control, included nearly a thousand Australians. And they find that men suffered similarly to women from all these sort of manipulative behaviour we're talking about here, although there are some special aspects of coercive control that apply to women coercing um, men, including using children to manipulate a man, to say, I'll leave you, I'll take your children, that sort of thing, or withholding sex, which of course is the classic <laughs> female tactic in terms of coercive control. Um, so this is, a, this is part of the new endlessly expanded definition of, of domestic violence, and this is part of what's being used to destroy men's lives around this country. I mean, if you go out in our community and talk to lawyers, talk to policemen about what's going on, police particularly are up in arms at how often false allegations of domestic violence, including these new forms of domestic violence, are being used uh, to destroy men. Our policemen are required to go into homes and the woman can just say, I'm afraid violence could occur. And they have to remove that man from his home. He may not see his children for, for two years. And I've had two members of the police force do videos with me wanting to speak out about what they see as an absolute rort. And the police are required to impose an unjust laws and they really resent it. The New South, the, the Queensland um, Police Union recently spoke out about this and said their own members were being subject to false allegations of domestic violence. And it, it is being used as a tactic in family law battles across the country. Is it your view there's a, an organised approach behind all of this and who leads it? There's this organisation called Our Watch, which is like the engine room of our domestic violence policies in Australia. And they proudly boast about the fact that their goal is not addressing domestic violence, that we have, they have to get involved in primary prevention, which means through remaking society. This is what they say. This involves a gender tra transformative program for social, cultural and structural and systematic change, challenging dominant and forms and patterns of masculinity that operate across structural, systemic, organisational, community, interpersonal and individual levels of society. They surveyed their members, 2,000 of them, people working in government organisations across the country, all working towards this goal of remaking our society according to their feminist ideology. And they proudly state that. And, you know, people come to me all the time. I have moles in government departments. I have members of the police force. I have members of the fire brigade. I have women, teacher the other day who'd been working in schools for 40 years who's alarmed about what's what boys are being taught, to be, how boys are being taught to be ashamed of themselves. I mean, all these people out there seeing what's going on and they're coming to me to say, what can we do? 
And I mean, I wish I had, <laughs> I don't know how to begin to handle this little army of people I've got now who want to try to draw public attention to what's going on. But our media, our mainstream media is absolutely captured and determined not to allow any of the stuff I've been talking about see the light of day. Well, you can't get good public policy without an honest debate. Uh, and there will be people who will have strong views about the things we've been talking about. My plea would be, though, let's get real about the data. What's it really telling us? If we're sincerely hoping to build a better society, we have to agree on what the facts are. So in any debate that flows out of this conversation, I hope people would focus on the research, the data, what's true and what isn't true which for the I'm sake of our children. Which I'm publishing, I'm publishing on, writing on Substack. I have a team of wonderful nerds and boffs who are digging out the data for me, who are wanting to expose what's actually going on. And I'm publishing blog after blog, exposing this stuff. So I, they're free blogs. You can, you can read them on Substack and I hope people will, will do that um, because I mean, it's been pretty frustrating for me to lose my platform and I'm just beginning to build it up again. Thank you for your time. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au.